We're continuing on in our series in the uh, Epistle of Romans. And this series is entitled Romans, a first century faith for the 21st century. And the theme of Romans, as we've been talking about, has been uh, really Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And that is where Paul writes, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so this series is really about how do we look at what the first century faith of the Bible taught us about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and what does that mean for us here in the 21st century? And so today, as uh, we come to Romans chapter 4, we're going to look at Abraham, the model of our saving faith. And oops, there we go. I uh, forgot. I'm doing the slides today. Um, and so the title of this message today is Abraham, our model of saving faith. Abraham, our model of saving faith. Um, let's turn to Romans chapter 4. And uh, it's, I'm actually going to have a stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, we're going to actually read the entire chapter. We're going to look at Romans chapter 4. So let's go ahead and stand now as God's word is read. The entire chapter. Verse 1. Paul writes, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then not then only for the uncircumcised or also the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still circumcised uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it, it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Verse 16. 
That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who go, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Father, as we go through this weighty, um, this weighty truth surrounding this man of faith, the forefather of faith, um, that we look to, Lord, as, as an example for us of what Paul has been writing to us about saving faith. I pray, Lord, that um, our eyes would be focused on the proper founder of what we should be looking for today in a world full of idolizing of other men and women, Lord. We look now to what Paul teaches in Romans 4, to Abraham. May we learn something about what saving faith is and what saving faith is not, Lord, today. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And go have a seat. Thank you. All right, that was a long, weighty chapter, and this is going to be a fairly technical sermon. We're going to be looking at primarily one individual that Paul holds up here in Romans chapter 4, and that is Abraham. And just by, uh, by context here, uh, we live in a culture today here in the 21st century where we idolize founders. We idolize founders of movements here in our world. You think, if you just look in the world around us, who, who are the people that our world idolizes in terms of the founder of movements in our culture? Uh, you can certainly say Steve Jobs is idolized. He was the founder of Apple and uh, basically introduced these devices that we all carry around today. You could think of someone like Walt Disney, who uh, founded Disneyland. And Disney, people who are really into it, it's kind of their own religion in some ways. You can think of a person like Elon Musk, who is, didn't invent the electric car, but he pretty much is associated with it and idolized for it. You can think of um, all of these conversations related to blockchain technologies and, and so forth. And you think of names like Satoshi Nakamoto or uh, Vitalik Buterin, and these are all founders of different movements in our world that people idolize here in our world. Today, we're going to talk about a more important founder, and that is Abraham. People idolize different people of the world in terms of the foundings of movements, but today we want to not idolize Abraham, but we want to look and learn what can we learn from him about what saving faith looks like, but also 
what, uh, what is not saving faith. Now, Abraham is certainly not on the same uh, pedestal as Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the source of our faith. But Abraham, what we're going to learn from Romans 4, is someone who exercised saving faith. And there's something that we can learn from that. So just before we get into our passage in Romans 4, I'm going to give a little background of where we've come from. In Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 that we have spent the last few months in, the Apostle Paul has basically been making the following argument in the chapters leading up to our chapter today. He has been making two points. Number one, that all Jews are guilty before God according to God's law. And even though they were given circumcision, even though they were given God's law, even though they were kind of the chosen people of the Old Testament, Paul's argument in Romans chapter 2 is that all Jews, even though they've been given all of these blessings by God, are guilty before God's law because the law, as we've been talking about, God's law, is primarily reveals God's righteous character, one, and two, it reveals man's unrighteous character. And so the Jews, even though they had the law and all these privileges by God, Paul is saying you're guilty before God without a Savior. The second point Paul has been making in Romans chapter 1 and 2 as well is that not only are all Jews guilty by the law, but all Gentiles are guilty before the law, uh, which is probably pretty much everyone in this room. We're considered Gentile uh, by birth, which is a non-Jewish person. And we are guilty because we worship ourselves, we have rejected our creator, and we are guilty because our own conscience will convict us uh, of our unfaithfulness to God's law. That is Paul's primary argument in the first three chapters. He's wanting to set up a legal case that all Jews, all Gentiles, outside of God, which is pretty much everyone in the world, are guilty before God and in need of a Savior. And we come now to Romans chapter 4. And what is the purpose of this chapter now? The purpose is Paul is going to now uh, focus our attention on Abraham, the founder of the Hebrew faith, the Hebrew nation. And he's not looking to hold him up as some kind of idol of a perfect man. He's going to talk about Abraham in Romans 4 by saying, what do we need to learn about what saving faith looks like and what it doesn't look like? And even though we're not Jewish, we have an important lesson to learn about what faith, and for us, faith in Jesus Christ looks like from this chapter. Background on Abraham. Uh, you know, th- this is not going to do justice to this man, but uh, I'm going to summarize it in the next few min- minutes what I think is um, some high points of what you need to know about who Abraham was. Jews and Christians consider Abraham the father of Israel. Okay, When Paul is talking about Abraham in Romans chapter 4, he is talking about someone, a real person, named, he was first named Abram, but then God changed his name to Abraham. But he's talking about a real individual that lived about 2,000 years before Paul is writing these words. Um, there are 15 chapters in the book of Genesis, from Genesis chapter 11 to Genesis chapter 25, that basically highlights Abram or Abraham. He's a significant, colossal individual in the Old Testament. 
Abraham is talked about in the book of Genesis as, um, as there's that, a covenant, an Abrahamic covenant that theologians talk about where he was given this covenant, this promise by God. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 12. God comes to him and says, I have come and I will promise you uh, land. There is this land I want you to go to in the land of Canaan. I will promise you descendants and I will promise you blessing. You will be blessed and all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. So God, Abraham was given the covenant of God. And throughout Genesis, Abraham, uh, he had left an area called Ur of the Chaldeans, Ur, Ur of Chaldea. And it's, that is an area of modern day. It's kind of um, part of Iraq, part of Iran, part of Syria, Turkey, Kuwait. It kind of, kind of encompasses a little bit of all of those areas. Ur of the Chaldean is uh, basically Mesopotamia. In, uh, in ancient times. And uh, this city that Abraham originally came from with his family, was, uh, it, was, it was a very cosmopolitan uh, city. Some archaeologists believe that the city that he originally came from was about 300,000 people, which is a significant city. It was a port city. And this was a city that was very pagan. It's very polyistic. In fact, we know that Abraham's father, a man named Terah, you can read about this in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. Uh, Terah was a worshiper of pagan idols and pagan gods. And so there's every uh, possibility that Abraham or Abram when he was younger, having had a father who uh, they were growing up in Mesopotamia, Ur of the Chaldean, and a father who worshipped polyistic gods, that Abraham was that as well growing up. And so uh, he kind of journeys from Ur of the Chaldean uh, northward. Terah, his father, takes him. And through a series of events, Terah dies. They uh, come to a place called Haran, which is maybe about 400 miles. What is that? Uh, 400 miles north, um, northwest of Ur of the Chaldean. And they stop there for probably about 10 years. And it's there that Abraham gets this calling to go to the promised land. And so Abraham takes off from uh, Haran and he heads south uh, west towards the promised land, the land of Canaan. And that's maybe about 200 miles away. And Abraham takes him and um, his wife Sarai and uh, Lot as well. Um, and I, I don't know if Lot has family by then, but uh, I, think, I think he might have. And so Abraham is a very significant individual. When you look throughout the sweep of Genesis, uh, there's several things that are commendable that happen. Oh, what happened to our slide? Sorry about that. There we go. Um, there's several things that happen in Abraham's life. I'll just summarize. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was given the covenant, Abrahamic covenant by God, promised land, descendants, all of the earth would be blessed. In Genesis 14, we see Abraham having encountered this, this mysterious individual called Melchizedek. We don't know much about him. We, he, knew he, was, he was a king, a priest, Melchizedek. And basically Melchizedek, Abraham uh, tithes to Melchizedek, which shows that he's kind of higher up spiritually. And Melchizedek is kind of like this uh, almost like symbolic Christ-like figure to Abraham. In Genesis 15, Abraham is given a promise by God, a, a renewal of the promise that he will have an heir, and that will eventually be known as Isaac, as you know. And um, 
an error to uh, to continue on the lineage of God's people. In Genesis 17, Abraham uh, has his son, Isaac, that would be uh, the lineage in which Israel would come from. In Genesis 18 and 19, Abraham goes in and through an act of tremendous courage and faith goes into Sodom to rescue Lot and his family, essentially, and leave before Sodom goes up in flames in God's judgment. And finally, in Genesis 22, Abraham is called upon to sacrifice and have faith uh, to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And as you know, the story goes, God provided a, a sacrificial ram so and, and to test Abraham's faith, and he didn't have to sacrifice Isaac in the end. So that's kind of the thumbnail sketch of who Abraham was. This is a very, this is, this is a titan in the Old Testament. This is someone that uh, all Jewish people look to and say, Abraham is the father of our faith. You could put Abraham and Moses right up there and David as well, but Abraham is kind of the fountainhead. And so with that, as we come to Romans chapter four, um, there's a lot in here. We could literally do about three sermons. We're going to zero in on what I think are are two main points from this passage. And we're not going to be able to cover it exhaustively, but we're going to look at what can we learn from Abraham about what saving faith is and what saving faith is not. Okay. And so uh, for the first, well, sorry about that. We're going the wrong way. All right, and that's our theme. There we go. And so, what saving faith is not? Let's take a look at this first. In verse 9 through 15, Abraham is, uh, Paul is going to highlight two things of what, what saving faith is not. He's going to talk about saving faith is not being circumcised. And secondly, he's going to talk about saving faith is not just simply trying to keep God's law as a moral person. Now, you might hear that and think, well, you know, that's, these are very Jewish concepts, and I'm not Jewish, so what relevance does this have to me and our society today? It has a lot of relevance today. Um, I was looking at some studies recently that said that 60% Almost 60% of all Americans today would identify themselves as Christians. 60% in America would identify themselves as Christians. Does anyone here honestly believe that's true? Does anyone here honestly believe that 6 out of 10 out of every adult American is actually a born-again saved Christian? It's not true, right? But what is that really saying? It's saying 60% of people feel like, you know what? Uh, my family is Christian. It's the religion of this country, and therefore I will identify that because it's kind of this outward sign of who I am. So about 75% of people today believe that they are a good person. 75% of people today believe that they're fundamentally a good person. And get this, almost 50% of all people believe that they are the best person that they personally know. <laughs> That as they look around at their family members, friends, coworkers, almost one out of every two people believe that they are the single best, most moral person that they personally know. This has a lot of relevance, this passage. Because when Paul is talking about circumcision, and he's talking about the law, 
He's talking about a people who are placing their faith in some kind of outward ritual. And he's talking about a people who believe that if they just can be good enough according to God's given law, then that's fine with God. So in verse 9 through 15, we're going to take this a little bit out of order. He talks about, he's saying, you know, it's the blessing of God. It's the salvation of God, verse 9, only for the circumcised. uh, Is it only for the circumcised, the Jews who are circumcised? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? And he goes on to say, well, Abraham, his righteousness was counted to him. Not after he was circumcised, but before he was circumcised. Verse 11, he got the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had before he was circumcised. And he goes on to say in the verses after that this was to show that it was not only for Abraham uh, making him the father of our faith, but also for us who would walk in the faith of Abraham. Verse 12 and following. So let's talk about circumcision for a moment. Um. Paul is mentioning this, and this would have meant something to the Jews at the church at Rome. Why would this have meant something? Why would Paul have had to address the issue of circumcision to the Jews, the Jewish Christians at Rome? Circumcision was a major deal in Jewish culture, in the Jewish faith. Why was it so important? In, um, in the account of Abraham in the book of Genesis, God commanded Abraham, and he said, you must circumcise every newborn on the eighth day. If you skip over to the book of Leviticus that Moses wrote, it actually commands God's people to circumcise every male that's born on the eighth day. So this was a matter of the law. This was a symbol that uh, some flesh was cut away from the male organ to symbolize that God's people through circumcision were set apart from the pagan people that surrounded them who were obviously not circumcised. And so it was a very clear indication in the most um, meaningful of ways of that you were separated and you were part of God's chosen people if you were circumcised as a male. Now, that was Abraham's example. That was the command in the book of Leviticus. But through time... Remember, we're talking about 2,000 years before this. And now as Paul writes this in the first century, from the time of Abraham, from the time of the book of Leviticus, now you go forward all that time, all these Jewish teachers started to evolve this teaching on circumcision. I want to read to you what some of the Jewish teachers were writing, and you'll get an understanding of why circumcision was so important to the Jews and why they associated it with salvation. Uh, one of the Jewish teachers, I'm going to mispronounce these names, uh, Jalkut Rubim, he said to the, uh, he wrote in his Jewish writings, quote, circumcision saves from hell. The Midrash of Miliam says, quote, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. It's not true, but this is what the Jewish rabbis were teaching. The book of um, Akedath Zizek says, quote, 
Abraham sits before the gates of hell and does not allow any circumcised Israelite should enter there. Now, you begin to understand why the Jews looked at circumcision and said, well, if you, if you are circumcised, you're saved. If you're not, you're not, right? You had Abraham's example. You had the command in the book of Leviticus. You had these rabbis expounding and teaching this erroneously. And so when Paul comes to the Roman church in Romans 4, he is saying something tremendously significant. He's saying, um, no, that's not true. He's saying, yes, Abraham was circumcised. Yes, it's commanded in the book of Leviticus, but that doesn't save you. Forget what your Jewish rabbis are teaching you. They're wrong. It's not, you can't do something. It's a work of your good work to be saved. And he also goes on to talk about in verse 13 and following 13 through 15, he talks about not only are you not saved by circumcision, but you're also not saved, secondly, by the law. He says in verse 13 through 15, promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but what? Through righteousness of faith. For if, verse 14, it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So the second thing that Paul's attacking here is he's clarifying, saying, look, you can't just try and keep God's law without faith in Christ and think that you're going to be saved. Again, why would he have to say this to the Jews? Why would they be so committed and actually believing that if we just kept the law, we don't need Christ. We can just, you know, we've been given the law, uh, the Pentateuch, the Torah. That's all we need. Why would they have been in that mindset? If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, this is what is known as the Shema. There we go. This is known as what is known as the Shema, which is the written state of the, the written summation of the Jewish law. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, um, Moses writes to the Israelites, and he talks about in the first four verses the importance of keeping the commands. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 1 through 4, he says, This is the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in all the land. You may fear the Lord your God. Um, he goes on to talk about you must keep the statutes and the commands which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. And here, O Israel, be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord has has, uh, given to your fathers and promised you the land uh, flowing with milk and honey. That's not the Shema, but that is an emphasis on their hearing this. I'm like, wait a minute. We are being told directly by Moses, we got to obey these statutes and God will bless us. If we don't, we're going to sacrifice that. And then you come to the Shema in verse 4 and following. And this is the summation of the Jewish law. Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and all your might. And, the, and these words that I command to you today shall be put on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them 
When you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them on the sign of your hand and they shall be uh, as frontless between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So think about what's being said here. Moses himself is reminded, and he says this elsewhere. He's saying, if you don't obey, you're not going to be blessed. If you disobey, you're going to be cursed. And by the way, you are responsible before God to love the Lord with everything that you have. And you got to teach this to your kids. It's got to be everywhere at your house. You should be talking about it. And so it is within that context, as Paul is speaking to the, Ro- to the Roman church and to the Jew- those who have a Jewish background, you can understand now why, why they were looking at the law and saying, you know what? We just have to obey and God will bless. If we don't, he won't. And then we have circumcision. Our rabbis have taught us. We see the example of uh, Abraham. We see the command in the book of Leviticus. And so therefore, you can understand why they would say, as long as we just get circumcised, as long as we try and obey the law, we're good. It's kind of like today, right? As long as I just come from a Christian family, and as long as I feel like I'm more moral than the other person, as one out of every two persons in America apparently feels, then I'm good. We may look at them again and say, well, how could you believe that? How could you not realize and figure that? We are the same way today. I come from a Christian family. I go to church. And um, I'm a better person than that evil person next to me in my workplace. And so we can understand where they're coming from in a general respect. And so Paul says this is not saving faith. The fact that you're circumcised and you're just trying to keep God's law. The question we should be asking now is, well, if that's not saving faith, what is saving faith? What can we learn from Abraham that can remind us of what saving faith is? Can you go up to verse 3? Verse 3 through 8 here. It says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast, but it's not, but not before God, but which he's saying he doesn't have anything to boast, basically. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. That's the theme here. That's the theme of the sermon. He believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Um, digression. When you look at Hebrews chapter 11, You know, it lists out all of these famous people of faith, uh, Moses and and Samson and Noah and etc. All of these people, Isaiah. One of the things it says in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, it says, these people believed that they were exiles in this earth. They, They believed that this earth was not their home. And they looked forward to a day where God would deliver them to their true home and they place their faith in God to do that. That's a summary, right? You can read it for yourself in Romans 11. The writer of Hebrews is saying that was saving faith in the Old Testament. They believed this earth was not their home. They looked forward to a new home that God would give to them and they didn't know how exactly that would happen, but they trusted that God would save them out of the state that they were in. That was essentially Old Testament faith, and um, the work of Christ was brought into that retroactively. And so when you come now to Abraham, 
and we see that his faith was counted at righteousness. It's the same thing. Abraham believed God when he promised him land, when he promised him descendants, when he promised that he would deliver Isaac. All of these things, Abraham had faith. And he didn't know how God was going to do it. And he's old, right? And these promises that were made to Abraham, it says he was 75 years old when he left Haran to go to Canaan. When he was made the promise that he would give birth to, uh, well, his, Sarah would give birth to Isaac. He was like 99 years old. And I think Sarah was probably about, you know, in her early 90s as well. But he believed and he trusted God. Um, and so he has this righteousness through his faith. It says, verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, that's God, the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Let me stop there. Um, Abraham trusted God. But I think that one of the things that we forget about Abraham is this. The saving faith of Abraham was sinfully flawed. Yes, he was the father of the Israelites. Yes, he's being, being held up in Romans chapter 4. But he trusted in God's righteousness to save him. And this is very important to understand when we look at Abraham. Okay, think about this for a moment, you guys. It's easy to look at Abraham and say, well, he's Abraham, I'm not. I mean, he, he was chosen by God, I'm not. Okay, so that's not me. Where do I find myself in this? He's this historical figure of this this. This person God used amazingly, who am I? What we forget, though, sometimes, is while Abraham was uniquely chosen by God, by God's sovereignty, to have God's promises, his covenants, to have an heir, um, to bless uh, a lineage, a genealogy that would bless the world, we also forget sometimes that Abraham was sinfully flawed as well. You can look throughout Genesis, uh, the Genesis account, and you can see many things that happened to Abraham that almost humanized him to us. In addition to this, this, this amazing individual that Paul holds up, the other things that happened to Abraham's life was this. Number one, when he was given the promise to, in Genesis chapter 12, to go into the promised land, he started to travel from Haran to the promised land, to Canaan. But along the way, Abraham, he was a rich man. He had gold, silver. You know, he, was, he was a man of means, a businessman. Along the way, as he traveled south, the book of Genesis says that he was coming into certain lands that were occupied by the Canaans, and he couldn't find the right land, and he eventually went down to Egypt. He, went, he didn't go into the promised land. He went to Egypt. And it showed, in a sense, a lack of faith for Abraham because he ended up spending about 10 years in Egypt before he actually went to the promised land. And have you ever been to that place in your own faith where God, you feel like you just know the will of God. It's been clear to you. And you come to a point where I, I know what you promised God. But I'm going to go sidetrack to my own Egypt. And we end up spending 10 years there, like Abraham, in a place where our faith 
is stalled. Where we get sidetracked and worshiping other idols. We take our eyes off God. And instead of essentially going to the direction God wants us to go in, we get sidetracked to go to Egypt and we spend all of this time in a place that we're not supposed to be in. And the book of Genesis says that when Abraham, or Abram at the time his name was, went to Egypt, he came to Pharaoh, and uh, he was scared for his life. And so he lies to Pharaoh, and he says, Sarai, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And the reason why he said it is because he said, if he said Sarai, Sarai was his wife, he was scared Pharaoh would have him killed and take Sarai for himself. But if he said it was his sister, then, you know, he wouldn't be killed, even if Sarah was taken away from him. And so Abraham not only got sidetracked to Egypt, but he lied out of fear. And he did the same thing to uh, King Abimelech uh, many years later. He came before King Abimelech in in the land of Canaan, and he lied to him and said, Sarai is my sister. He's not my wife, out of fear for his life. So what we see from Abraham, he's got sidetracked. He, there's an account where he lied out of fear. And thirdly, Abraham was also impatient. He was impatient. Remember when um, God had promised him an heir in the book of Genesis and uh, Sarai was barren, his wife. And so she comes to Abraham. She goes, I want, I want a kid. Here's Hagar, my, uh, my slave woman. Why don't you go impregnate her and we'll have a kid. Abraham listens to her. They have a kid named Hagar. Uh, named Ishmael, turns out to be a disastrous mistake because that's where all this pagan lineage came from after that. And uh, Abraham was impatient. He listened to his wife. He went and had a child with a woman that was not his wife. Later on, it got corrected. He had a wife with uh, Sarah, which ended up being Isaac, that God allowed them to have to to, uh, fulfill the covenant. My point is this. When we look at the life of Abraham, we not only see an individual of tremendous faith, but we see an individual who got sidetracked in his faith. We see an individual who lied out of fear in his faith. And we see a person who got impatient in a disastrous way in his faith. And I think in some kind of um, human way, that should actually be encouraging to us. You're here today, and you have faith. And sometimes we can look at these individuals and feel like this person is so untouchable, so out of reach for me. They maybe look at, at, they can provide some kind of example for me to attain to, but they didn't make any mistakes that I can relate to because I know the sinfulness of my own heart. That's not true with Abraham. The, The clear account in the book of Genesis is that we should look at him and say, you know what? I have come to realize that saving faith may not look like perfect faith. Saving faith actually looks flawed. Christ is not flawed, but my faith is flawed. My faith is full of impatience. My faith is full of getting sidetracked. My faith has fear. It's full of lies that I embrace sometimes, like Abraham. And yet, does that mean that Abraham was not saved? Does that mean that Abraham forfeited the promise of God? No, it didn't. 
because he continued to trust in him. Are you? When you think about your own life this morning, we can beat ourselves up about all of our failings and feel like I'm unworthy of God. And I think what God wants you to know from the life of Abraham is that if you are in Christ, your faith is in his righteousness. Christ forgives the lies. He can forgive the fear. He can forgive the impatience. And he can forgive you for years of getting sidetracked. Christ can cleanse you of that if you come to him in a repentant heart. But don't feel like being a Christian is a perfect journey. And some of you, I think, need to hear that this morning. You need to hear that, you know what? It doesn't excuse my sin. But it does remind me of the grace of God. Because if Abraham experienced the grace of God, then so can I. And so we close today with this. Um, In verse 7 and verse 8, David says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And if you skip on down to verse 22 or 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, verse 24, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. For us, our faith, we don't want to look at Abraham and say, well, you're just a great man of faith. It's flawed, but you had faith, and so that's, that's good enough, just trusting God. For us, what the gospel is, is we trust that the righteousness of God has come to us through our faith in Christ. Do you need the righteousness of Christ this morning? Do you need the righteousness of Christ for your salvation Do you need the righteousness of Christ for your daily walk with him? We all do, right? I do. I, I, you know, just during worship, I was thinking about just all of, I want to say shortcomings. That's the nice way to say it. But the truthful way to say it is all my sinfulness. And I was sitting there thinking, I need the righteousness of Christ because I have, you know, even in in my own thought life and in the good that I failed to do even this week in, um, I need the righteousness of Christ to overcome that. I need the righteousness of Christ to be healed from that, to be forgiven of that. And so I don't want to come to church today and just say, okay, I'll just try better next week, Lord. I want to come to church today and I say, Lord, ah, that reminds me of my need for Christ. That reminds me that I got to come to him and say, Lord, I'm a weak, I'm a broken, I'm a sinful man. Have mercy upon me. Forgive me. I need the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. Renew me, Lord. And it is that act of faith um, that is in line with the faith of Abraham. We have faith in Christ to save us, and we have faith in Christ to continue to sanctify us. And so as we come to the communion table now, um, I want to invite you to reflect on the righteousness of Christ and our need for that in our own lives. Um, I'm going to invite you to just close your eyes in a, in a 
time of prayerful meditation. I'm going to read to you a passage for communion. And um, actually, before we do that, um, let's we have this set up today. I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a professing believer, if you identify as um, the body of Christ, as a Christian, then the communion table is open to you. And I want to invite you, before we actually read this, um, let's go ahead and come up and receive the communion elements. I mean, come on, take and come back to your seat. And I'm going to read a passage, and then uh, we'll receive communion. So um, if you uh, would like to, you can go ahead and approach the communion table now. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read a, one passage for us today. And um, why don't you just close your eyes, and uh, worship team is going to play some music. I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I just want you to hear the words of our Lord. And this is a solemn time. This is a time that uh, we are remembering the crucified Christ, our need for him, his resurrection. This is a time when we're reflecting on our need for that and we're coming to the Lord and with a contrite heart. And um, I believe the Lord will bless this time and uh, his grace is for everyone as we come to him. So listen to this passage, and then I'll lead you, and we'll receive the Lord's Supper together. 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink, eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. receive now the bread symbolizing the broken body of Christ.
receive now the juice representing the shed blood of Christ.